Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Time for us to talk about circus, which is an art form I adore, and which like contemporary dance, is often written on the body, created on the body of the artists who are performing it, which then makes sense that you would get a choreographer to work with circus artists to create a show, which is exactly what's been happening at NICA, the National Institute of Circus Arts, where the latest show from a group of NICA students in the third year, uh, they're presenting a show called Oniric, uh, that is... Uh, being directed by my next guest, uh, Edgar Zendahas. Uh, Edgar, welcome to Triple R. Hello, Richard. Thank you for having me. Very great pleasure. Now, Edgar, you have worked a lot, uh, I guess, at the intersection of dance and circus. Earlier in your career, you were more focused on traditional choreography. What prompted the move from choreographing dance to working with circus artists? I think it was by chance, by coincidence, to be honest. Uh, I received a, a proposal to choreograph in a show in Switzerland, and I decided to do it, and to be honest, basically because I wanted to go to Europe. <laughs> so I went, and I had an experience that I really, really enjoyed, and I loved it, and it was a challenge in the beginning. Then I discovered methods to to work with circus artists, and that, that brought me into Montreal, which uh, it has a big, big uh, field of circus arts, and so I contacted the circus school in Montreal, and in 2014, and I have been working with them since, so that's how I discovered circus, by, by chance, basically, yes. Yeah. And in terms of choreographing circus as opposed to, I don't know, uh, choreographing uh, a contemporary ballet such as your, kind of, I think it was 2017, 2018, you were working on kind of new productions of the Rite of Spring and Spartacus, for example, contemporary full-length ballets. So you're clearly familiar with that kind of, um, uh, uh I guess, physical vocabulary, but talk to us about how you work with circus artists, how you uh, work with their individual skills to to create a show with and around them. Well, you know, when I started working with circus artists, they, I noticed that uh, a lot of artists from circus, either they start with dance or they come from dancing or, or they have taken some movement classes. So... I was not so so uh, uh, surprised by by facing circus artists, but uh, I discovered that I have to do fifty-fifty. I have to adapt to them, but at the same time, I have to challenge them with uh, movement, with phrases, with counts, and I discovered that. Sometimes, most of the times, basically, the way of move, it's a new 
new visual for me, new image, images come, and it's a new way of moving that uh, it, uh, it has in, uh, make my, my choreography more wide, or wider, sorry. And uh, so it has been a, an adaptation, but at the same time, it's a, it has been a, a challenge for them to adapt to me. But I, we, I always find the middle point, and, and the, the result is very, very beautiful, I think. Now, given the broad range of backgrounds uh, students at NICA come from, some of them may have previously been gymnasts, for example, uh, as teenagers. Uh, some of them may have been dancers. Others may have trained in circus since childhood at a no-warehouse circus in Canberra or the Flying Fruit Fly Circus up in Albury. Um, they clearly bring a broad range of skills uh, to, to NICA to begin with and then uh, over the, the three years that they've been studying are learning new skills, honing their individual specialities and so forth. When you're creating a show like Oniric, talk to us about how you are utilising those specialist skills that they each have, but then, kind of, as you say, working also with the movement vocabulary that you know well to, to add more dance to the mix and to create a, a cohesive show. Um, I think uh, I, when I enter the world circus, already all the artists are very versatile in many aspects. So especially in the, the schools of circus, they, they learn everything, to be honest. They learn theater, they learn dance, they learn circus, of course. And so it's not... Uh, to be honest, it's not hard to do because they already have taken some knowledge in movement, which is my my aspect. But uh, to put all together, usually I I first I ask what are their their specialities in circus. I usually try to pay attention to each one and see their artistic circus arts. Then I open what I call a conversation through movement. I, I give them, I offer them a phrase, and we all play with that phrase. And that phrase is going to, like I call, break the wall. So they feel identified with me, and I identify with them. So through that phrase, we start creating a language, regardless what their background is. And like I mentioned before, sometimes they move in a certain way that it's very new to me and that is very attractive to my art. So that's how I, I implement all their backgrounds and my, my mind into the creation. And in terms of the show that is being created and which is uh, being performed uh, at the National Circus Centre in Paran from the 9th until the 17th of June, as I mentioned at the start of our conversation, it's called oneric, uh, which is a word that um, is, uh, I guess, talking about dreams and dream states um, and the, kind of the, the act of dreaming. Is that suggestive of what people will see on stage? Will we see some kind of dreamlike performance? 
I think it is. I think I try to find the word that describes better the the themes of the show. And on Earth, to me, it's a state of dreaming, but at the same time, it's a state that you are between dreaming and awake. You know, when we just wake up or we we feel in that state that not totally ready. It's a moment that uh, we are in between. And that's why I choose this word, because I think that it describes that, that point. And also describes something that I wanted to research, something that I wanted to work with, which is, uh, I think in English you say somnambulism or sleepwalking. And is that also, for me, a mystery? What is the mind doing or what is happening while you are walking, sleeping at the same time? I used to have a brother that used to do that all the time, and I was always wondering what is he, because he was basically him, but he was sleeping. So I always was curious about this state. So this uh, this creation inspired me to to research this theme, and with the whole team, we we explore what our mind is doing during this this state and that is one of the things of the of of, of the oneric uh, creation now i'm curious given that you've worked as you said earlier with um circus starlight in switzerland you've worked with the national circus school of montreal you're now here in melbourne working uh, at nica the national institute of circus arts what have you observed about um the the style of circus perhaps uh, being taught and uh, being practised at NICA. Is there something identifiably unique or different, a, I don't know, an Australian circus uh, style or vocabulary that uh, is unique in what you're seeing? Or are they, uh, is, is it less distinct than that and part of a, a broader global circus tradition? You know, I think circus is a little bit like in dance. When I go to any country or any place or any school, any company, I always feel that we we are our own community. And even though we're in a different country or we speak different languages, our art makes us one whole world. Like, uh, I feel really open, really identify with the artists and with the with the designers with the collaborations and i would say that there is really no difference maybe in with the culture yes with you know the way of working or the, in the production or but in in general with artistically i always feel we, we speak the same language in dance and in circus. Uh, so I wouldn't say that I can see differences. I, I would say that I feel comfortable working in, in English <laughs> more than French sometimes. But uh, but the artists themselves, they are, they are, we are the same, I think. 
I'm speaking with Mexican-born choreographer Edgar Zendayas, who is working with the third-year students at NICA, the National Institute of Circus Arts over in Paran, to create their new show on Neric, which is running from uh, this Friday, the 9th of June, through until Saturday, the 17th of June, at the National Circus Centre in Paran. I'll give the, the booking details in a moment. But, Edgar, I'm curious. I know in the past you've spoken about trying to create a better world through choreography. How does one create a better world through choreography of either dance or circus? Well, I think uh, over the, to create a better world, I think uh, it's dumb, and I, can, I think we could see it a little bit with the pandemic. Uh, art is very essential for, for humanity, and whatever art we practice or we do or we we relate it to, I think it's a, it's a way to have a better world. And I think uh, our art as a circus artist, as a dancers, it's already creating that. I think uh, without any way of artistic expression, I don't know where the world will be. <laughs> So I think already the 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 fact that our art at six exists, it's uh, it's creating that. Well, that means then also, of course, that the Nika students are also collectively and uh, collaboratively also working towards a better world just because of the art they physically embody in their show. The NICA third-year student ensemble show, Oniric, which is uh, directed and choreographed by Edgar Zendayas, uh, running from this Friday, the 9th of June, through until Saturday, the 17th of June, uh, at the National Circus Centre in Green Street, Paran, and you can book by going to nika.com.au forward slash performs. That's nika.com.au forward slash performs for booking details for Oneric from the 9th until the 17th of June. Edgar, thank you so much for joining us. And as we say here in Australia, chookers for the show. <laughs> thank you so much, Richard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Now, I suspect uh, that uh, many of you, kind of like me, um, probably first were exposed to the art of the Russian-born modernist artist Mark Chagall in high school. I know I was looking at my kind of art history books uh, and I first went, this is beautiful and intriguing. And Chagall is not an artist I know particularly well in terms of a body of work, but there is a major new exhibition of Chagall's work uh, opening at the Jewish Museum of Australia, accompanied by a show called Carnelian by my next guest, the artist Yvette Coppersmith, who joins us in the studio. Yvette, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you in. Now, before we talk about your work created what in response to the Chagall exhibition, um, was your uh, first encounter with Chagall like mine? I don't know, say year, year, year eight, year nine art when you're learning about the history of, of modern art movements? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I feel so similar to your experience. And I feel like every family that has an interest in art may have one book on him. It may not be very comprehensive. And so I thought I knew all I needed to know. And hadn't actually thought of my work ever in connection to his, but have obviously in my practice over the years thought of many other modernist artists who I've responded to and been influenced by. So it was a total surprise when the Jewish Museum approached me with this proposal because I was like, oh, wow, no, I've never been um, put in the same sentence even. <laughs> Which, flattering, but also I imagine somewhat terrifying to think, oh, I have to respond to this kind of art legend and, and create, what, a whole new body of work? Yeah, that's right. And uh, it was interesting because... Um, I guess, yeah, I I usually respond to work after I've seen a show and I hadn't obviously seen the show until after I'd made my work. So it was really based off um, some thumbnails, my own research from books. But the ideas that I had before I had the meeting with the Jewish Museum, I had a sense... So I had just done an abstract body of work for my last solo show in Sydney, which was called Pressage. Um, and... I just had a feeling I wanted to paint roses and it was quite sort of a shift and I was like, I don't know. And then I had also bought a costume um, last year and I had started work on a self-portrait and it had a ruffle collar and it had a bow in my hair. And so these were things that I was already um, wanting to explore. Then I was working on this self-portrait thinking, what even is this image? What character is this? I don't know what I'm doing. And then in January, I thought, okay, it's time to really go to the library, look at some Chagall books more in depth. And it's strange to say this, but it was the first time that I had looked at an image of him and his wife, his first wife and his muse, Bella Chagall. And she, in the black and white photo, looks so much like me and she had a white ruffle collar. And he has actually painted portraits, portraits of her with a ruffle collar and that was the most eerie moment when I realised I was making work in response without even knowing. Which speaks to perhaps the, um, I don't know, the, the power of the subconscious. Mm. Um, I'm sure some of that's there. And also uh, presumably just a degree of, of uh, happenstance and luck. Yeah, things are lining. Um, and the other aspect that I found out, so I was actually finding things out after I was making work was that um, he did a lot of still lifes and in my show I have got bouquets of flowers that I've painted. So actually in their relationship as artist and muse, she would bring him um, bunches of flowers to his studio to paint and it was just, you know, he really captured something about the love in their relationship, the tenderness and there's a beautiful book called Love on a Stage which I really resonated with because I've also painted in the past like some really tender embracing or kissing or couple portraits. Obviously I didn't marry my muse but um, you know it, it's like he was really trying to tap into something that was so pure and joyful about the love that he had with his um, wife Bella and you know so many modernist huge name male artists have explored the female muse in various ways. Sometimes often quite toxic ways, if we it, think about Picasso, for example. And de Kooning. And so, you know, this is a really different take. But the other thing is, I think what I 
really started to realise that this is an artist who is um, the most aligned with my own cultural lineage. So he has come from the shtetls of Russia, but my grandparents came from the shtetls of Poland. And there's a Yiddish background. And I think what people may not realise is my um, cultural roots in Melbourne, like I'm the first generation born here from my family migrating after World War II, both my parents never met their grandparents. They didn't have grandparents. That's how close the connection is to the Holocaust. Um, and then I went to a primary school, the only one in the Southern Hemisphere where they taught you Yiddish every day. I could read and write and speak and sing in Yiddish and I spoke with my grandparents and that's the language of the shtetl. That's Mark Chagall's you know, language. Um, and... As an adult, I went back to do Yiddish choir for a year because I wanted to reconnect. And then in 2017, I was the art director on the Ghetto Cabaret, which was a community Yiddish theatre. Um, at the same time, I was painting Julian Trigg's portrait for the Archbold, doing a documentary. I was also enrolled in Year 12 Yiddish classes, which I knew I would fail <laughs> because I just didn't have a lot of time to devote to it. But there was at that point that year that I felt like if I don't take a step back from Jewish community life... I, and no one else is going to do my career for me. So the following year, then I won the Archibald. So it was like a timely decision because I really had no free time. And, you know, then I hadn't had a solo show in Melbourne since 2016. My last show was in Sydney. Um, so to be invited back to have a show in, like, the Melbourne Jewish community and the Melbourne art community, this is like my spiritual home, both those communities. It's like better than I ever expected. Ah, it's that Venn diagram overlap uh, with kind of uh, you and this exhibition at, at its heart. For people who don't know Mark Chagall's work, let's talk about that a little bit before we then kind of explore kind of your responses to it. I mean, a fusion of what Russian folk art uh, Orthodox church icons, Jewish tradition, contemporary modernist Western work after he moved to Paris in 1911, which was such a, a kind of rich kind of cauldron of artistic ideas at that time. Talk to us about, the, I guess, the feel and the style of how you see Chagall's work. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see how he is like the only one that has brought this shtetl life into a modernist uh, visual vernacular. Like, it is so unique. But I think what's happened, and I've read this um, in one of the books I was researching, is that um, when, you know, he's a contemporary and a peer of, of Picasso, Picasso's legacy in terms of his influence is so profound. But then when you look at uh, the legacy of, you know, how has Marc Chagall influenced, and you could say it's a bit kitsch, <laughs> like Yiddish kitsch or something, but actually his work was, um, yeah, just so, so unique, such a um, unique moment. I think um, also in the time of the last seven years between the shows, the development in my practice has kind of made my exploration of colour um, a lot more um, aligned with what he was doing. So it probably wasn't something that I ever thought of before, but it was like, oh, okay, I've actually become more like him um, in the themes that we were exploring. But it's also in the spirit of his work. And, yeah, he's got this interesting synth synthesis as an artist with all these different backgrounds that he was kind of able to integrate with these different communities. So... 
um, yeah, it's pretty hard to kind of put in, in a nutshell, but he did this kind of cross-cultural um, stuff with Jewish, with the Jewish symbolism. But he also worked a lot with, like, the crucifixion as a way to also think about the Holocaust. That was, you know, and that's probably tricky for some people in the Jewish community because he had so many crucified Jesuses. Um, but it was, you know, he, there was a lot of depth to all of that symbolism for him on a personal level. And also, I mean, looking at some of his work uh, just online again this morning, the whether we're, we're looking at, I don't know, uh, bodies floating above towns and cities and, and landscapes or uh, circus acrobats and uh, the, the kind of the vitality of them uh, and the, 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 the subtleties of the image, even when they're sometimes saturated in colour, there's a... Um, there's a an almost mystic quality to mm-hmm. some of them, which just invites so much interpretation. I'm sure everybody's individual interpretation of, of a Chagall painting is going to kind of differ. But when you started to look at work to create a body of work responding to it, talk to us about what you took to cr- uh, from uh, Chagall's work in terms of whether overt inspiration or subtexts and how you then began to represent that and explore that in the the works you've created to accompany the Chagall exhibition? Mm. Well, look, a lot of it was intuitive. And then afterwards I thought, oh, this is how it connects. So I wanted to create a space that was like really um, kind of a colour transfusion. So the walls are painted with this um, shade called carnelian. Uh, That's actually the paint swatch colour. And it is a stone, it's, you know, the name of an a gemstone um and that color kind of is woven through every single one of the works so it we it kind of ties in the port the self-portraits the abstract works and the still lives um for i guess the other thing that it connected with was when you look and i haven't been to russia and now it's not a good time to go but um you know Looking online at the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, the colour of the walls is quite similar to carnelian colour, which is this really warm red, um, orangey red. So I think where I came at it from was thinking about his connection with Bella Chagall. It actually, when he was in exile and had to leave you know, his town and Russia and he was overseas, she represented something of that spirit much for years after and um it's like a connection to the old world that's been lost um so I wanted it to be um a space for both the lost world but also the feminine muse that had really enriched his life um and supported his practice in such a deep profound way I wanted that space to be like alongside his in and I guess in a way, like, I have always been my own muse. And and I um, f- felt like the more, in a sense, like, I did feel it was like this heavy thing hanging over me, like, Mark Chagall, my, it would be a relief not to think about him for the next work I make. But, <laughs> but at the same time, I realised, like, the more that I was just being myself, the more aligned it was with his work so it's kind of not a conceptual response it's such a joyful spiritual thing that you can't it's like you've just kind of aligned at this moment in your practice um where there's a synergy um so it's kind of 
yeah, it's a it's a romantic show, but it's like I wanted it to feel like for the community, like they go in there and they're connecting to the warmth of home or community or love and like a hug. Now, Yvette, you mentioned uh, the Archibald Prize, which you won in 2018. That was with a self-portrait, a, a kind of a, a beautiful formal uh, formalised, perhaps, rather than formal is a better word, uh, self-portrait. But you also mentioned the, the more recent Sydney exhibition of yours, which was uh, abstract works. Were those abstract works a distinct reaction to the the formal process of the self-portrait, for example? Was it a, an opportunity for you to go in a, in a wild and less controlled direction? Oh, I love that question. I think it's kind of been a very slow, brewing aspect of my practice I had started experimenting um, with abstraction but it's come through a lot of other ways into my work because I did um, still lives and uh, just many many influences and and iterations of the years that led me towards it but it was seeing a a show of Roger Kemp in 2019 at the NGV a survey or a retrospective Um, and his work inspired me so much and I really felt I wanted to respond in some way. Three years later, um, I was able to, and I researched what had influenced these oops, these tiny little works of dancing figures and it was his love of the ballet russe when they came to Melbourne. And that was like interesting because it was 1939, right before Australia announced their involvement in the war. And, and so it was this really joyful moment in Melbourne where this like European culture had come and inspired the Melbourne art scene. And I just was so amazed how the connection being influenced by something that was happening in Melbourne just before a war that brought my family to Melbourne um, but I guess I wanted to work out how I could access a, a language and it was so different to his, but it was like I was bringing a dance shoot and, you know, being the dancer and you know, pretending to be a ballet dancer. Um, so all these aspects to bring like movement into the visual form that I was creating. Which is, a, again, perhaps a nice connection or echo of Chagall's practice in terms of him being inspired by, uh, I don't know, by the Fauvists, for example, in terms of their use of colour. Um, uh, and then there's that kind of, I've forgotten the name of the particular movement, that really dynamic Italian kind of uh, series of, of artists, kind of lots of just really kind of furious movement in all mm. of the work. So, you know, bringing that sense of kind of those kind of echoes across art history and across art timelines and are he, fascinating. And he did do, like, set and costume design for ballet and theatre and, Which you know, I understand some theatre companies were a little bit freaked out by because they were going, look, it's beautiful, but it may overwhelm the, the, uh, the, the actual theatre. So, yeah, one of the things in the show upstairs of his is we've got a projection of the ceiling he did for the Paris Opera House. So it's like you can see it projected on the wall, um, which you can't obviously, like, look, borrow the ceiling. So it's the next best thing. And there's also some stained glass windows, I believe, as well. Yeah, there are, which are really beautiful. Modernist, yeah, and they're really beautifully presented as well in, in the space. I'm looking forward to uh, exploring Chagall at the Jewish Museum of Australia, as well as Yvette Coppersmith's accompanying exhibition, which I understand is on takes over the ground floor of the Jewish Museum. Yes, that's right. There's a space downstairs and it opens tomorrow. <laughs>
<laughs> so no pressure. <laughs> but it's on till 10th of December. Yes, so, so a good chunk of time from the 9th of June until the 10th of December at the Jewish Museum of Australia, 26 Alma Road, St Kilda. Open Tuesdays to Fridays from 10am till 5pm uh, and Sundays from 10am till 5pm as well. Tickets on sale now at jewishmuseum.com.au and if you'd like to learn more about Yvette Coppersmith and her practice, you can go to www.yvettecoppersmith.com Yvette, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, likewise. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Can I perhaps tempt you to escaping the Melbourne winter this year and heading up for a, a cultural journey uh, up on Larrakia country uh, to go to Darwin Festival this year? I'm joined on the line by Kate Fell, the Artistic Director of Darwin Festival, who recently launched her inaugural festival program. Kate, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Richard. Lovely to be here. So talk to us about the feel and the culture of Darwin. You've been up there for several months now, getting to know the city, getting to know its people, and trying to respond to that in your program for the festival. What does Darwin feel like to you as a city? Darwin is is, a beautiful place, and um, as you say, I'm Marikia country, and um, it really is like no other place in Australia. It has its connection and proximity to Asia is a big part of living in Darwin and you really feel it from the food and the culture and, and the weather and all of those things. Um, it's it's a really diverse place in terms of the community and, you know, and it's relaxed. It's really a beautiful environment. Um, you know, people up in Darwin talk about they talk about peak minute instead of peak hour, and it's a real thing. You that you know, you that time of you know it takes you ten minutes to get anywhere, and and those things really have a big um, impact on on your life. And um, so yeah, you just have a it's relaxed. You can't you can't rush in too much in Darwin, uh, and so the festival response to that I think it's it's about the people and the place and um and the outdoor environment and as you say in August in um Darwin winter it's a pretty beautiful place to be so we certainly take advantage of that uh, being outdoors as much as we can um, so yeah that's that's sort of the how the festival really responds to to the place yeah now given the 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 lack of rush that you've mentioned, for example, the pace. Does that create programming challenges given that your audience presumably don't want to do what audiences say at Adelaide Festival might do and run from show to show to show to try and cram a lot into one night? Do you then have to stagger out acts a little bit more to reflect the the slightly more relaxed Darwin lifestyle? I mean, I think what people want to do is come together. So there's a beautiful festival hub, festival park, and people, you know, they come there straight after work and it's all local food um, providers who, you know, so you get this real taste of 
taste of the world, but brought to you by, by Darwin. And so people, you know, enjoy that time. And then, yeah, but they do, you know, people also go, oh, it's a chance to see multiple shows. So they certainly do uh, experience the full festival. Um, you can see, you know, multiple shows in a night. But a lot of it is really, we have Festival Park, and then this year we're expanding that to what we're calling Festival Lawn, which will have the Spiegel Tent on and Mahu Magic Bar as well. Now, Spiegel tents have become almost obligatory at festivals in some time, for some time now, but this is the first time the Spiegel tent's been back to Darwin for a couple of years. It is, yeah. So the last time was in 2019, and, you know, I, I, um, Spiegel tents are just those really great things that you don't get to see every year. It's um, working with Strutt and Fred, who, who certainly know what they're doing when it comes to creating a great Spiegel Tent show. And, yes, it's really great to have it back. I'm really pleased to have Mahi Magic Bar as well because I think that's another, you know, again, it's been around the, and lots of the festivals around the country but um, hasn't been to Darwin before. So I think audiences up there are really going to love that with what is a really great festival experience. Now, what I think will be a great festival experience is something that is happening specifically for the uh, the uh, opening of Darwin Festival, a new work called Life Slash Time, which is a collaboration between Gravity and Other Myths from Adelaide, um, the, the NT Muso Jimbler and Darwin's uh, fantastic corrugated iron youth arts. You know, I'm really thrilled about this. This is a, going to be a really special work. Darcy, Grant um, and Gravity and Other Miss uh, were really excited. We were talking to them and are presenting their work, A Simple Space, which, again, a beautiful work that's toured the world uh, and that will be on in our outdoor stage. And so starting talking to Darcy about, you know, he and, and Gravity and Other Miss, you know, have a really strong sense of um, connecting with communities and, and, and so that opportunity to connect with Corrugated Iron Youth Arts, who they're doing incredible work. So every, just for one example, every Monday they go to one of the local primary schools and the whole primary school does circus once a week. And, you know, so those young people will be in the show as well. And they also, you know, they go all across the Territory. So to be able to work with them and work with their, their troupe of fantastic young performers to collaborate with, the incredible performers of Gravity and Other Miss, and then to create this, you know, what will be a really special spectacle of the opening night in, in Festival Park and that precinct. Um, we've commissioned, as you say, a, a, new commission, a new music commissioned by Jimbler, and he has spent, you know, he's spending time on country and, and interviewing, um, you know, particularly getting the, the voices of, of young people. Uh, it's very, the, the score is inspired by that. So I, I'm, yeah, really looking forward to seeing what, what they can create. And, but, but also, you know, it's the show, but it's also the impact and the, the, um, the ongoing engagement. And a show like that, which speaks directly to the people of Darwin and is made for Darwin, is one of the, the key things that festivals do, uh, and particularly for cultural tourists uh, who might be coming up from Melbourne for the festival this year, um, one of the reasons to come to Darwin, apart from the weather at this time of year, uh, is to experience cultural events that they cannot have in another city. So um, I understand, for example, that this year another of the, the great um, Darwin-based uh, performance companies, uh, Tracks Dance Company, are working with community, for example, from the, the Tanami Desert to create a new show. 
Absolutely. So this is drawing on. They've been working for 30 years in collaboration with this community. So it's it's a, you know, what is a sort of celebration, I suppose, is the best way of putting it, of, of that incredibly long, you know, uh, collaboration. And so it will be at the Darwin Waterfront, which is, again, another beautiful part of Darwin. And it's, it's you know, and it's like an immersive installation. So you can go and you can experience um, some of the, the visual elements, hear films and talks and, and performances. And there'll be a, a symposium as well if you want to kind of do a deeper dive into, you know, this this 30-year project. Um, it's the first time that they've brought this into Larrakia country. So, yeah, really special, special project that tracks are, are doing. Now, if that's at the waterfront, am I right in thinking that also the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair is in that part of Darwin as well, which is uh, a really significant event for people who want to uh, uh, view and hopefully purchase uh, ethically created and ethically su- supported artwork directly from Indigenous-owned art centres? Definitely. I mean, that opening weekend of the festival, we work with a range of partners and to to what becomes this in, um, amazing opportunity to experience the diversity of First Nations arts and culture. So the art fair, you know, people uh, spend their <laughs> yearly earnings on some incredible artwork and, and fashion, um, but it's more than that too. You get to, to talk and engage and, and participate in in workshops and performances and so you know it's a really wonderful experience um the art fair also the foundation also presents some fashion events as well country de couture and the the national indigenous fashion awards and then there's just a whole lot of exhibitions that are on and artists from the territory and beyond you know you get to to meet a lot of the artists that we obviously the um the national the national indigenous art awards are on at, at the gallery so yeah it's it's an amazing time to really jam pack a weekend of, um, of art and culture. Now, one of the other significant uh, NT companies that uh, we should acknowledge uh, is the NT Dance Company, uh, kind of led by artistic director Gary Lang, who uh, wants, again, an opportunity to see a significant company that don't really come to Melbourne, so you have to go to Darwin to see them, but for this new work that they've created, The Other Side of Me, which I think has been a couple of years in development, this is mm. something that has been created in collaboration with a, a university in the UK. That's right, yeah. it's It's got a lot of support um, internationally for this work and, you know, it's a real collaboration based on a young um, young man's real-life stories and his poems and his journals uh, who was um, uh, from N- the NT but was adopted by a white English family. And so uh, it's, a, it's a dance duet. It's a really exploring themes of identity and displacement and, and otherness. Um, and, yeah, Gary is hes really he's an amazing person, Gary. I had the pleasure of hearing him in conversation as part of Gamalang Festival, which is on here up in Darwin recently. And Gary's stories, his what he has achieved in his life, many things that I didn't know, uh, he, he's quite remarkable. And he his impact in the Territory... What he has given back to the community is huge. And, yeah, last year we presented a new work of Gary's as well. Um, And so it's wonderful to continue that this year with The Other Side of Me. And I really feel this work, you know, has a really ongoing life um, 
nationally and internationally. But, but yes, come see the premiere. It's always a special moment to see a premiere of a new work. Now, Kate, before you started the Darwin Festival, you've worked around uh, different arts organisations and different uh, festivals and companies. Uh, you've spent quite a lot of time in Queensland, for example, with Brisbane Festival and so forth. Uh, and I can't help noticing that you've invited a, a company that will be familiar with uh, Brisbane audiences and particularly Gold Coast audiences. Uh, the Farm uh, are presenting the world premiere of a new work at the Darwin Festival this year. Absolutely. I mean, look, I love The Farm. They are, you know, I have seen their work. I mean, they kept changing their names over many years. I don't know if you kind of remember all of their names that they had, but, you know, they finally became The Farm and, um, you know, I've seen them. I've, I've paddled out to them on an estuary in the Gold Coast to d deliver them a coffee. I've, you know, seen them on the beaches of Surface Paradise. So, you know, and then... I don't know what was the other one, and the um, in sitting in a car in a showground. So they're so adventurous in the work that they create. What I love about this work is they're taking all of that adventurousness, but they're making a big work in the theatre, and it's called Stunt Double. So it will premiere with us, which is really exciting, and, and is supported by the major festivals initiative. So, um, but we we are thrilled to have the premiere. Really fantastic kind of concept, which is about using the, the the film industry. You know, so it's set in this 1970s exploitation film, and you're, you're sort of starting to see this film being made before your eyes. And but what they do is they use the the stunt double as the um, you know that idea of when someone you know is there and they're they're taking all the pain for someone else's glory. And, you know, you see the, the actor kind of jump in right at the end after this stunt, you know, stunt double has taken all the hits and, the, you know, the actor gets all the glory. But it, it sort of, it, it verges between, it's kind of that real Coen Brothers dark comedy, you know, where you're laughing, 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 and then you're like, oh, hang on a minute. I don't know if I should be laughing anymore. And, you know, and, and it really does delve into some, you know, pretty intense themes as well. But... In, in the classic farm way, you know, has this, um, yeah, a beautiful sense of humour to it and, and yeah, expect big, big stunts, big moments. Um, yeah, you know, I've seen the developments of it, but, you know, obviously it's still to be fully made. So um, we'll know what to expect on, on opening night when we see it. <laughs> I'm speaking with Kate Fell, the Artistic Director of Darwin Festival. Uh, and the Darwin Festival this year running from the 10th until the 27th of August. You can find out full program details at www.darwinfestival.org.au. Kate, just before I let you go, obviously um, the festival attracts uh, culture vultures like myself and many other cultural tourists uh, year after year. It also serves and celebrates Darwin uh, and its people by bringing some of the best work from around the country that otherwise Darwin audiences may not have the chance to see. You've You've got comedians like Sammy Jay coming up. You've got Rook Circus from Launceston coming up as well. Um, I just quickly, before we wrap up, I wanted to speak to the music program, which is, again, a key Ooh. part of the festival and features a wealth of artists, including some great territory artists. Absolutely. Um, we, you know, it's a great lineup. I'm really excited about the opening Sunday night. We'll have Euromol, um, rising East Arnhem star, 
and then Budra as well, which um, will be you know, just a, a fantastic Sunday night after uh, the Saturday night, which is the National Indigenous Music Awards. That's just kind of one night. I mean, Regurgitator doing their unit um, album in full, that's been the, uh, that's one, the tickets are flying out the door, as you can imagine. Um, one of the other beautiful things we're going to do this year is have a closing weekend at the Darwin Ski Club. For anyone who's been to Darwin, most people go to the ski club. It's pretty iconic. And, you know, as the sun is setting over the ocean, over the sea, we'll have on Saturday night Katie Noonan performing Joni Mitchell's album Blue. And then on the Sunday night we'll have the Whitlam's Black Stump Band, their sort of, old, you know, Tim Friedman's old country um, project. And also on that night, which I'm really excited about, is a beautiful NT artist project called the Stuart Highway Album. The launch of that album and Dave Garnham, who is a you know real Darwin Darwin legend, has collaborated with NT artists from across the, the Stuart Highway. So you know from Darwin to Catherine to Alice Springs, etc. And yeah, really, I think that's going to be a beautiful um, concert as well. There's a lot to see at Darwin Festival 2023. We've barely scratched the surface. If you've been intrigued by what Kate and I have been discussing, then I definitely recommend jumping online, www.darwinfestival.org.au, to explore the program. The festival runs from the 10th until the 27th of August. Um, Having visited twice as a guest of the festival, I can say that it is a lovely festival to visit uh, and... (laughs) Getting that Melbourne cold out of your bones by stepping out into the kind of warm Darwin air in the middle of winter is definitely something to embrace as well. Kate Fell, many thanks for joining us on Triple R this morning. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to talk to you, Richard. Triple R. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 